0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Grace McLaughlin, a recent graduate of Harvard Law School. We will discuss her note. Fanciful Failures, Keeping Nonsense Marks Off the Trademark Register, which is published in the Harvard Law Review. So welcome to the show, Grace.
1: And thank you for having me.
0: The pleasure is truly all mine. I absolutely adore this paper, and I've been looking forward to talking to you about it for a really long time because it's a subject that I've been fascinated by, and I was delighted to learn that you actually answered so many of the pressing questions that I had about what was going on in, in Trademark. <laughs> but for listeners who haven't been obsessing with this uh, material the way that we have, I wonder if you could start by just explaining what you mean by a nonsense mark and and maybe even giving us some examples.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. So a nonsense mark is is basically a, a term that I made up for a trademark that is actually used in commerce. So it's not a fraudulent trademark, which would refer more to a trademark that is applied for with the USPTO, that the person has no intention to actually ever use on or in connection with a product. These ones are actually used, but they consist of a sort of just really seemingly arbitrary string of of letters that uh, is basically unpronounceable. So, some examples from the note, though there are a lot, is a mark that is L J X O A E. No, A I E U for hair clips or J A N R S T I C for headphones. Some of them are s- shorter, like Z G G C D or M A J C F, which has become my favorite because my friend Lauren actually got me a M A J C F hat. Um, so now I own one of the Nonsense Mark products. But so, so these are actually used in commerce, but they are just sort of Basically impossible to actually pronounce or remember or, or talk about in in the way that a trademark that we would be it would be more a more typical trademark like Pepsi or something would be. And I don't know the, the 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 note doesn't sort of attempt to quantify all of these marks or where they appear. But one place that people might be familiar with them is from Amazon. If you're looking for something on Amazon. that isn't the kind of good that you would have a really big brand loyalty to or something, or sort of status object or something, something more like a phone charger or white socks, and you just go to Amazon and you type in white socks, chances are you'll see a lot of results that have these random gibberish names attached to them. Uh, and I can explain the reasons why the, those are sort of proliferating on Amazon, but those are what I mean by nonsense marks.
0: So maybe you could back up for a second, right? Because what I want to know is, why are marks like this getting registered in the first place? I mean, how does the the trademark office think about registration such that a nonsense string of letters becomes something that is
1: going to register as a trademark in the first place? So, I think that there are kind of two answers to that question. The first is sort of why people are even interested in these marks in the first place, and the second is how they're actually getting registered. For the first question, for the first question, Basically, uh, Amazon has a, a program called the Brand Registry, which is very, very helpful to be on if you're a seller on Amazon. Um, it offers all sorts of benefits to sellers. Uh, and in 2017, they started requiring a registered trademark to be on the Brand Registry. So a number of companies that wanted to be on the Brand Registry to compete on Amazon, but didn't necessarily have a huge interest in trying to develop like a robust, famous brand, just sort of rushed to the USPTO with any sort of string of num- of letters they could to get the mark registered so that they could be on the brand registry. So it's kind of, it's a predictable set of incentives that are set up. And I think that the reason why you saw, you see this gibberish kind of, these gibberish kind of strings of letters, these nonsense marks, sort of is, is a segue into your second question, which is why these, these marks are appearing on the register. The reason that these marks are, appearing on the trademark register is that every indicator of trademark law suggests that these are the best kind of mark you could have. Common sense, us that's kind of silly, you would think that a strong brand would be something that you could remember and pronounce. But the reason these marks have the capacity to just sort of sail through the registration system, which is why they would be intriguing or or appealing to a company that just wants a trademark, doesn't matter what what it is, is um, because... A lot of trademark law was designed with the worry in mind that companies would want marks that were too descriptive or too close to just saying what the actual product is. So if you talk to marketers, the ideal trademark for your apples is Apple, because that just makes it so easy for consumers to know exactly what they're getting. Uh, And the issue with that for for competitors is that then... If you get to trademark Apple, then nobody else... Uh, that was a terrible example to use, I realized because of Apple computer. <laughs> I'll pick a different one. Banana. Uh, if you have trademarked banana, nobody else can use that to identify their goods, or it'll be harder for them to. They might get challenged in the ways that they do it. And so it just has the anti-competitive effects, and we don't want to make it impossible for people to talk about their goods. So... Historically, the trademark system has been the most suspicious of marks that are termed generic. So there's a a scale, basically, of distinctiveness that's been developed called the Abercrombie spectrum, which ranks marks sort of in terms of most to least protectable. So the least protectable kind of mark, the one that's most likely to get denied registration, is a generic one, banana for bananas. Similarly, descriptive ones seal tight for a fastener are no good as well. And on the other side of the spectrum, the most likely to be protected is a fanciful mark, which is one that's made up. So like Exxon or Pepsi. And the reason that that one is so easy to register is because it's unlikely to be similar to any other mark because it's a made up word. It's also unlikely to harm other con- other competitors because they have no pre existing interest in the word Pepsi. So these marks, they're fanciful. They're, to- they're entirely made up words. So they are, in theory, like the best trademarks and are easily registrable. It's
0: interesting because on one level, it seems like these nonsense marks do them one better by being even more distinctive, but at the cost of being impossible to use and not actually communicating any information to consumers about the products if they don't remember what the marks are. Is that a trademark problem, or or should it be a trademark problem?
1: Right. So I think that they are at once the most distinctive, but also kind of circle back to being the least distinctive. Because can you remember the three marks that I listed ten minutes ago? They're impossible to remember, so they're kind of it's it's hard for them to actually be distinctive in a meaningful way. And as to your question about what this is the problem with the trademark system, on the one hand, a lot of the justifications for Trademarks, especially sort of more recently, turn around consumers and the possible harm to consumers of of confusing of two marks that are too confusing or things like that. And in theory, these these marks don't harm consumers. You know, it doesn't matter to me if my Amazon thing is called M A J C F or not. But I think that they impose a lot of secondary, or not even secondary. Maybe I shouldn't call them secondary. They impose a lot of costs on other players in sort of the trademark landscape. So in my note, I identify three specific issues. One is for the USPTO, one is for competitors, and one is for just sort of trademark laws systems of meaning. So as the first, like every year for the past 10 years, the USPTO has gotten more trademark registrations or applications than the previous year. They're they're swamped. There's a huge problem with fraudulent trademarks, which Parton Beave and Gene Frommer talk have written extensively about. And so The applications for marks that the producers don't really intend to actually be used as trademark just sort of add more work to an already overburdened system. They increase wait times for everybody, just sort of more trademark applications, especially ones that are not actually done with the goals of trademark protection in mind, just bog down the USPTO. The second is the harm to competitors. One of the big reasons to have a registration system is so that people can search it and can see which marks are taken, which marks might be available for my business. And nonsense marks sort of bog down the register. So, uh, you know, a person who wants a traditionally viable trademark probably wouldn't want a nonsense mark, but they might want something close to it. So instead of MAJCF, they want, might want MAJI, like Magi or something, which does work in English. And But when they see MAJCF on the register, they might be deterred from registering it. Uh, If they already have MAJI and somebody tries to register a nonsense market similar, they might have to expend costs trying to fight it. Of course, small businesses especially don't have necessarily have the resources to fight these battles. And then it also just creates so much uncertainty. You know, you could try to do MAJI, but it just it's you'd be taking a big risk. And then the third, the third issue is sort of what we've been talking about already, which is just that these metrics of meaning, the Abercrombie spectrum, as well as another big thing in trademark law is the likelihood of confusion analysis, whether two marks are confusingly similar. Nonsense marks just sort of break these systems down entirely. They sort of defy the, what Abercrombie assumes about marks for likelihood of confusion. It just seems almost impossible to try to figure out whether... Two random strings of numbers are or are not, of letters are or are not confusingly similar, and you know maybe these these metrics that we have aren't necessarily the best ones, but they're the ones that we have. So if you're trying to register a mark or you know discuss your options about trying to fight a nonsense mark, it just makes it so much less predictable when they are so, so evasive, kind of in the in the trademark system.
0: What's well, funny because based on your description, I mean it seems like in some ways. These companies are using these non-sex marks in ways that aren't trademark-like in the sense that they aren't really trying to communicate information about source of the product in a traditional sense. Although I feel like there is some information being communicated about source. It's just more kind of diffuse, perhaps. I wonder if they use them in a trademark way at all, right? I mean, when companies get a nonsense mark, do they only use it for one product or one period of time or do they kind of stick with the same nonsense mark over a longer stretch of time? To to the extent that you have any idea.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really not sure about sort, sort of the, the long-term use of these marks or what companies are actually doing with them. I would be interested to know, but it's just something that I didn't really know how to look into. And so for the purposes of my note I sort of assumed that these marks are actually being used sort of in, quote unquote, the trademark spot, sort of used in a way that a normal company would use a trademark. But my note argues that they should not be registered as trademarks because they fail to function as trademarks, which is exactly what you were saying, that they don't actually work in a trademark way because the assumption of trademarks is that people will remember them and rely on them as brand names and It's impossible to do that with these, especially when there are a lot of them in the market to try to differentiate which of these random sets of letters you got your headphones from.
0: So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, because this trademark concept of failure to function is one that I feel like people have ignored historically for a long time, but that scholars like Alex Roberts and others have kind of been bringing back. What is it? What does it mean? And what role does it play or should it play? In a trademark analysis,
1: yeah, uh, Alex Roberts has described failure to function as the redheaded stepchild of trademark law, um, but it has uh, it has been sort of having having more of a moment recently. Even just numerically, if you search failure to function in the trademark uh, in in the TTAB database, every year there are more decisions that invoke it. But so basically, the idea of failure to function is that it comes from the language of the Lanham Act, which is the the statute that sort of creates the trademark system, uh, which defines trademark as any word, et cetera, used by a person to identify and distinguish his or her goods. And so it zooms in on identify and distinguish. And basically it creates a tool for trademark examiners to refuse registration to marks that don't work like trademarks are supposed to. They don't actually identify or distinguish the source of a, of a good. So one common category of failure to function is phrases or sort of hashtags um, that are just sort of used socially. So one example I give in the, the note is this application for hashtag magic number 108. And the issue with that trademark is that a consumer would sort of would see that on a piece of clothing and just think that it was generally a message of support for the Chicago Cubs and they wouldn't link it back to the source of that T-shirt because it just was too common a phrase that was used on Twitter and it was just used in the parlance. So other ones are, or on the table or I heart DC. These are just sort of phrases that people use. You can't, unless there's a company that is so, so closely tied to them, uh, they're just sort of too common in our parlance. And so they don't function as trademarks because when you see them, they don't actually identify where the good comes from. You just see it and you think, oh, I heart DC. And so because failure to function is so focused on sort of how will consumers actually register this as a trademark? Will they view it, will they see it as having trademark meaning or working in a trademark way? I argue that failure to function sort of is the right framework for understanding and, and sort of rejecting these nonsense marks. Um, and I, I specifically describe an extension of a doctrine that would be linguistic failure to function. So Marks that don't function because they don't actually work at the language, at the level of language that people can't remember them. People can't differentiate among them. Even if at the moment they see them on Amazon, they understand them to be sort of where a brand would be on a product. Five you know, five or 10 minutes later, you can't tell your friends where you got the product other than just Amazon.
0: Yeah. So this is a part of the paper I found really interesting because I'm totally on board with your your sense that there's a problem here. And failure to function does feel like the right frame to think about the nature of the problem. And yet at the same time, it feels like these nonsense marks failure to function in a really different way than the other kinds of marks we have problems with failure, fail. fail. function in the sense that they do differentiate the products in some sense. They just don't differentiate them in the way we expect trademarks to do. And it seems like historically, we've thought about failure to function in a really much more, in a different way, almost like it's too generic here. It's like they're too specific or too specific in the wrong way.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think the failure to function is interesting because It kind of gets it in an instinctive sense, because I would argue that something like Magic 108 isn't generic for t-shirts. That seems totally random for t-shirts. The issue is just that it's generic in our common parlance. And so we don't associate it with a specific company. So I think that there's like sort of a, almost a temporal aspect or a, a richer contextual aspect to failure to function where it's considering not just the word itself or where it appears, but sort of the social context around it. And I said temporal, especially, I think that's relevant for failure to fu- for linguistic failure to function because it takes a long view, not just of does this look and feel like a trademark at the moment that you're seeing it, but can it be relied on? Can it be used as a trademark sort of in parlance? And of course, some nonsense marks like it's possible for a series of letters, that seems random, to do that to gain secondary meaning. Or I give the example of K-U-W-T-K, which sounds like nothing, but is, if you are in the know, a common acronym for Keeping Up with the Kardashians. So there are sort of these series of, of letters that actually are doing something else, but a lot of them just don't have durational sort of staying or sticking power, and so I think that's why they fail they, they fail to function in a contextual view, even if they do seem they, they fail to function differently than Magic 108 would fail to function.
0: Well so from a from a trademark examiner's perspective, how would this work in practice, right? Like imagine I'm a trademark examiner. How do I know if a mark is a nonsense mark or something like the Kardashian hashtag you just mentioned? What if anything should we expect registration applicants to do in order to substantiate the kind of validity of the mark they're trying to register in this context? And what should people you know, what should I be looking at as a kind of trademark examiner to figure out whether or not I should take their claim seriously?
1: Yeah, I think that this definitely is a very kind of standard Z test, but a lot of tests and trademark law are standards and sort of just about an examiner's sense of, I mean, the magic 108 example, you, there you can make an argument that it does, it is tied to a specific clothing brand um, and the examiner sort of has to, has to determine it based on the record there. So I don't think it, my hope is that it's not too much more know it when you see it than, than some of, our, some of the other tests that exist. I think that, I mean, there's, there's research that I dipped my toe into a little bit, but was, intimidated by into phonology, um, which is a field of linguistics about words that quote unquote work as words um, and how they're among language speakers. I think that there is a, a fairly intuitive or common understanding of a difference between a word that I make up that works in English, you know, that you might see like in sci-fi and fantasy writers do it all the time and a word that you make up that just does not work. So I think to some extent, I think it, maybe it is a bit note when you see it, but I sort of have faith that that actually is a fair metric. But then I think for for these examples like KUWTK, I think that if if a, a, a person who's applying uh, for registration does have an actual reason, so I think it can be a bit know-it when you see it, but I think that actually people's intuitive metrics are fairly good. And I, I don't have all the research on this, but I, I think there's some understanding that people have a fairly common shared understanding of if you're if you're in a specific language community, what made-up words work and what don't work. And then in terms of, like, in, I think that for the example of the K-U-W-T-K, I think that, so one one thing I argue in the note is that I think the applicant should be, who, who apply with marks that might look like nonsense, should be able to provide proof that they actually are not nonsense, that consumers will, in fact, understand them, know them durationally, recognize them when they see them, uh, remember them, and I think one—I mean—one basic uh, way of proof is just explaining your reason for picking the mark. I think a lot of marks that are actually meant to work as marks. There's a the person didn't just grab like Scrabble tiles out of a bag. Other ones are you know secondary use on social media, in advertising, in 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 reporting. Uh, a lot of these 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 methods are also the ways that we look for secondary meaning. Yeah, so other other ways that you might look uh, for trademark meaning are those that we actually already use for marks that are descriptive, but the person has argued have uh, attained secondary meaning. So advertising for the mark, volume of sales, consumer statements, sort of media coverage, things like that. But I think even just the just the bare fashion alone of actually being able to describe, like, how do you imagine consumers presenting as where did why did you choose this? Where did this come from? I think that alone. Uh, I think we might sort out a number of these really, truly random marks.
0: Well, it seems like the linguistic failure to function framework you're proposing works pretty well when it comes to the nonsense marks that you're describing. But I guess I can't help but wondering, like, what happens if the same people who are applying for these nonsense marks, which seem to be a problem in large part because they consist of like long strings of consonants with no vowels, for example, like, what do you do with that? I mean, what if they start just submitting effectively identical marks, but just have more vowels in them so that they more closely approximate something that you might actually be able to pronounce or like start just going through like archaic dictionaries and picking words that have been like out of use for a really long time i mean should should those kinds of marks be registrable or do you think they if they present a problem is the problem a different one than the nonsense marks that you're talking about in this particular note
1: yeah, I would think um, for both those examples, I mean, because I think that, yes, not not all nonsense marks have the issue of consonant clusters. Some do have, like MAJCF is an example of one that almost has the right sort of ratio of consonants to vowels. They're just not quite the right consonants. Like I guess it's a consonant cluster. But anyway, there, there are examples of ones that vowels are involved in the failure. But so I think that, that if it is a made-up word that... You know, incorporates more vowels, but in a way that actually kind of makes it pronounceable or identifiable. Or if it's an archaic word, I think that then you're no longer really in failure to function. It, it, as soon, I mean, not all brands are strong brands, but as soon as you're into the territory of words that people can sort of compute mentally and can you know pr- pronounce on a basic level, can remember the next day. I don't think that it. I think those companies then are no longer really failing to function. Um, and probably are just sort of cleverly getting around. I mean, like to be to be clear, like I don't. I, th- I think that more than anything, this is a, kind of an Amazon problem. Like, I don't blame the companies for doing this. It's an incentive directly created by Amazon and by Amazon sort of outsourcing labor to the USPTO um, with its brand registry. So, I mean, I, yeah, I don't. I don't blame the companies that are that have these onsen marks. And if they find a way around my proposed test to make it onto the brand registry, then. You know, if they aren't sort of harming, doing secondary harm to the trademark system, which I think they wouldn't be in these examples, then more power to them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so, so, Grace, in closing, I guess the thing that I can't help but think about when, you know, I reflect on the nonsense Mark, you describe, and as I kind of reread your paper this afternoon and kind of thought about the problems it poses and that you're wrestling with in the paper is like, what if anything? Does the kind of the problem you're addressing here tell us about the coherence of kind of trademark doctrine around distinctiveness and the framework that we use for sort of differentiating distinctive from non distinctive? Marks. I mean, does this suggest that, you know, maybe we ought to be like thinking a little bit differently about how we go about evaluating these marks? Because it seems like on one level, the reason that these are sailing through is just because we don't have a proper framework for kind of thinking programmatically about what makes a mark a mark as opposed to what makes a mark gibberish.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's right about sort of the distinction between... Uh, a mark that works and a mark that doesn't work in this linguistic way. Yeah, so so my note at the end sort of gestures toward the work of other trademark scholars, uh, specifically Rebecca Tushnet and Mark uh, McKenna and Mark Lumley, all of whom argue that trademark law has expanded in these ways that can be potentially anti competitive, often in the name of consumers. But they all advocate in these, in, in a number of their papers, for a, a a focus back on what consumer, how consumers will actually a more contextual analysis of how consumers will actually be receiving and understanding marks. So, you know, this comes up in likelihood of confusion. There are all these sort of exotic confusion theories that people argue consumers aren't actually confused. Sometimes they just, they, they aren't confusing two different marks. They just understand that one person is parroting the other mark, but that's not confusion. And so here too, I think that failure to function in general, uh, but, and then specifically linguistic failure to function, sort of in grounding trademark law back in a more nuanced and contextual assessment of how consumers actually are likely to behave and perceive marks, hopefully can sort of cut back on some of the anti-competitive effects of trademark law. And so so yeah, so I see I see my note hopefully as part of that that body of work, um, just in its in its attempt to pay more and closer attention to how how trademarks are actually sort of Working in the world, what they're up to, and how they, how they work on HMC more specifically.
0: Awesome. Well, Grace, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this excellent note. Uh, I look forward to using it in my seminar this coming semester.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: That catchy name. His product made him very rich and it brought him lots of fame. The reason for his great success, I'll now explain to all. He had to call it something, so he called it had a call Oh, Hadicle, call, had call How I love that had a call makes you strong, makes you tall. Everybody loves that had a call Now a guy I know is very bald and he has no hair at all. His friends told him if he wants waves that he should try had a call. Now, friends, I will not lie to you, cause lying is a sin. But now upon his big bald head he's got waves, waves of skin. Oh, had a call, had a call, how oh, I love that had a call. Makes you strong, makes you tall, everybody loves that had a call. Now in a town in Mexico they ring bells when babes are born. The bells had not been ringing there, all the people were forlorn. But then along come Haddockall, and how that stuff did sell. The folks all bought that family size, now the bells all ring like... Well, Haddockall, Haddockall, how I love that Haddockall. Makes you strong, makes you tall, everybody loves that Haddockall. My brother had an awful itch on both his big flat feet. He scratched and scratched them all the time, and to watch him was a treat. He soaked them twice in Haddockall, that's how the story goes. It stopped the itching pronto, but he now has four more toes. Oh, had a call has vitamins, number one and number two. There's calcium and phosphorus and iron, good for you. With alcohol and honey, you have what it takes to be. A lover and a sweetheart at the age of 93. Oh, had a call, had a call, how oh, I love that had a call. Makes you strong, makes you tall, everybody loves that had a call.